Hey again, listeners, another episode of Unverified Accounts, and I'm Chris here with Liza and Philip. What's up? Hi. And I'm so excited to have one of our favorite guests in the our just like extended podcast family, Arnov. How you doing, Arnov? Hey man, it's good. Uh, good to be on here again. I guess not again, but yeah, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's our first time on Unverified Accounts, but Arnov has been a Escape from Planet guest several times. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks, guys. I'm really happy to be part of the extended fan. <laughs> yeah, I, you're basically you're basically our South Asian media correspondent at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like I'm the one brown person here. <laughs> uh, tell our listeners right now where you are and what you've been up to for the last few months. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm currently in uh, Mumbai or Bombay in India. Uh, so I'm originally from here. I grew up here, but I mean, I was born in the U.S. Complicated story. Uh, and normally I live in San Francisco, where I've been working on a startup for a bit. Uh, so I came home in December to just visit my family for a while, you know, like just I was planning, planning to stay for a month and a half. And up until recently, the COVID situation was a lot better than the base. So I, I decided to just stay here, you know, uh, like go sailing, go hiking all the, on the weekends, uh, just have a good time. And mm-hmm. I was actually planning to come back to the Bay this week. But in the last three weeks, there's been a real spike in COVID in India. And that mm-hmm. hit home because some uh, people and like some family members tested positive right as I was going to leave. Mm-hmm. And so I'm basically stuck here for another uh, two, three weeks at least. So uh, yeah, just uh, hanging in over here. There's also a full-on lockdown in Bombay right now, so I don't really have any FOMO about going out or anything. But uh, oh, this means I can yeah. stay at home and watch martial arts movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, are your family members okay? The ones you talked about? Yeah, they're good. Luckily, nobody has any uh, really bad symptoms or anything. Uh, and my parents uh, and my grandparents actually, though I don't live with them. Uh, they all got uh, vaccinated, uh, at least their first dose of the vaccine a few weeks ago. So even though one of them, like even though my dad tested positive, uh, he doesn't really have any symptoms. It's just more of a precaution than, than anything else. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, Arnov, we've been trying to find uh, a way to get you on the pod for a while. And it seemed like every, uh, every time you were supposed to come back to the US, it kept getting pushed back and back. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then um, once again, got pushed back. But Luckily, we found this time to have you on. And one of the things you wanted to do was something on martial arts. And mm-hmm. one of the shows that I happened to watch this year was Warrior. And I'll be honest, I, like, I wasn't expecting too much from this show because I have a kind of a mixed feelings about martial arts. Not in the stupid, oh, martial arts flattens us Asian Americans. You know, not that kind of thing. It's just like, I, you know, I, I remember watching Enter the Dragon. I thought, okay, uh... This is kind of okay, I guess. I don't really understand why it's so um, beloved. Okay, I guess. Eliza's going to slap you. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, reach across uh, uh, the mic and slap me. But, you know, I love Sleeping Dogs, the game. Um, so, you know, I could go either way. And But I, I watched this, and especially the second season, I, I really did binge watch, and I'm not a binge watcher. So I, I've been really wanting to do an episode on this show, especially because... I mean, this debuted in 2019, in the spring of 2019. So this was before COVID, but with COVID hitting and, and the rise of like anti-Asian violence, not just recently, but also ever since COVID hit. And hell, let's let's pull it back all the way to like the, the sinophobia that's been really been ramping up ever since Trump came into office. It's suddenly really relevant. And um, it, it's on HBO Go. Well, I think the, what's, what's great about this show is that it brings to light that it's always been there. Right, right. And mm-hmm. it's like a period of history that we kind of know about, but we only ever hear about it whenever some 
uh, Asian American academic or activist is writing some article and they have to bring up Vincent Chin and, um, you know, internment and the Chinese Exclusion Act. And, you know, you know, the drill it's, it's basically like like a, a template at this point, but you never really see it or feel it. And I think it's the first time that we feel it when we watch the show. Even I'm though sure, it is a I'm fantasy. Sh- you know, I'm sure it shows up prominently in like the, was it ABC Asian American documentary but like mm-hmm. this is way more fun than a documentary uh, right? yeah i mean come on like if you really want people again to feel it what are you mm-hmm. some fucking pbs mm-hmm. documentary or or just like cinemax yeah. uh, action drama yeah i gotta say that whenever anybody talks about this period uh not just about like the asian part of it but just generally uh i feel like they undersell it a lot because uh so the backstory here is that a few years ago i found a an old book about the history of san francisco written in, in 1954 so everything that so kind of like covers the years before the 1906 earthquake, right? And you just read about it, you feel like you're in, you know, like Port Royal, Port Royal from Pirates of the Caribbean, but on steroids. <laughs> uh, like there's just every single, like every single vice you can think of, uh, every single, you know, like <laughs> fucked up story you can think of, mm-hmm. uh, every single, you know, uh, just crazy Wild West trope or stereotype is found, it was found in that city for that golden 50 year period between like 1856 and <laughs> 1906. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, pun intended. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so uh, just watching Warrior like brings it to life in a way like, uh, I don't know, I've never really seen any show like that now that I think about it. The closest thing I could compare it to was maybe Peaky Blinders. And Peaky I've Blinders heard, yeah, yeah, I've I heard like, that comparison yeah. made too, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It does remind yeah, that, me of that. I like it because um, it mainstreams the Chinese Exclusion Act, which like people just don't learn in school. And mm-hmm. unless you actually seek out that kind of information, I don't even think you would know about it. Cause yeah. I admit, like Chinese exclusion act. I didn't know about that until like college or after maybe even after college. I don't know. Yeah. Probably me the same. Yeah. Unless you take like an Asian American studies type of class, which I didn't do till college. Yeah. <laughs> and this mainstreams it and then it dramatizes it too. It dramatizes it too. So there's a lot of emotion and like you care about the people involved. Right. Okay. So, um, I mean, just, I mean, uh, we will probably have put this in the episode description anyway, but this will be full of spoilers. There's really no way to talk about this in any interesting way without going into detail. So, just a forewarning that's going to happen. So, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start. Uh, laying out the the very basic plot points um, from start to finish. You guys feel free to interrupt me anytime whenever I like mention an event or a character that you want to add more to. Um, and so we'll go, we'll go from there. So the main character is Awesome, who is played by Andrew Koji, and he uh, in the first episode he arrives in San Francisco and he's dropped off in this dock full of all these like, coolie laborers. And then I, I think there are like these cops or, or or whatever the authorities there start pushing other workers around, and then he like stands up for himself and he like beats up like four four of these like white cops or whatever. So from from the start, you know that this guy is some kind of martial arts badass. Oh, just to give some uh, background info, this was based on a like Bruce Lee script or something actually called Assam. It was supposed to be set in the old west, I think, more in the cowboy times. But, uh, you know, infamously, it got taken away from him, made into Kung Fu with David Carradine. <laughs> so this was an attempt, I think, by his uh, wife, his daughter, Shannon Lee, Justin Lin, and some other people to to bring what they thought was close to his vision. I think it's the time period... It's also why he does um, Wing Chun. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Eliza, you're the martial arts expert. It all... I'm not it the martial arts expert. It's just, you know, it's... <laughs> 
<laughs> like, how could you tell? Like, I mean, it just all looks like Kung Fu to me, but uh, like, how can you tell? The tree is a big thing, right? Like the thing he trained, like the, you know, like that little, little wooden. Uh, oh, little, yeah, that yeah. That thing he always with. trains yeah. against. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing it in, I think it, it features prominently in Ip Man or something uh, as well, if I remember correctly. Right, right. There's but a his, lot of his, Bruce Lee love. Yeah his, oh, yeah, his style, and we should talk a bit about this, but like his style in the show is actually like Jit Kune Do and Wing Chun. Like I think actually his rival, uh, Leong, is more of a Wing Chun practitioner, right? Because the thing about the show is that like it, it, it tries to bring the, the era to life, but it also takes a lot of kind of like, you know, makes a lot of exceptions to modernize things quite a bit. Right, it's a fantasy, right? yeah. Yeah, so. it's a fantasy, yeah. right? And so the martial arts style isn't exactly what might have existed back then, but it looks awesome, so it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, getting back to the, the plot. So, Assam catches the eye of Wang Chao, who is played by uh, Hoon Lee. He's the guy with, with the cue, and he's kind of like this wheeler and dealer. He, he, he is the liaison between non-Chinatown and Chinatown. He has no real allies or enemies. He just works with everyone. He runs a store where he sells weapons and uh, all sorts of other things. So, Wang Chao sees this. Uh, badass and realizes uh, one of his, I guess, clients whose father, June, who runs the Hop Wei Tong, could use an enforcer like him. So that's how Assam gets introduced into the world of Chinatown Tongs. Uh, meanwhile, the greater political uh, battle is that there's this big conflict with this influx of Chinese laborers. So you got like the business people who like this influx of cheap labor. Then you got like the nativist labor force, mainly Irish. Uh, who don't like them, and it's like a big political fight. And Mayor Blake is the mayor who's like, trying to juggle both sides. And um, eventually, there's like so much violence that the business leaders tell him to create a Chinatown task force to at least give the appearance of controlling the violence. Which is how we get introduced to two the two main cops who are, are who are like the most important characters, Bill O'Hara and Richard Lee. O'Hara is like the drunken. Uh, degenerate gambling sergeant type and Lee is the the fresh-faced kind of mysterious young recruit uh, and you know they represent two sides of the law like O'Hara is you know corrupt and jaded while as Lee is idealistic uh, and um, kind of naive uh, Lee is just a total fucking square man <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah, so, he's, like he's like every like 1950s you know he's, he'll be like one of those kids with a fucking pocket protector who gets beaten up by biff tannin in back to the future right like he's basically that <laughs> but he changes up in season two he changes up quite well, a he, bit yeah for, he goes he goes yeah. up the deep end in season two that was a, that was a really fun story arc actually i like him a little mm-hmm. bit more as a uh you know spoiler but you know opm addicted uh like dumb fuck yeah, like, <laughs> like Officer Lee is the one who's like give who gives the cops at least a presentable f- face in the show because everyone just seems so. I mean, like I really like O'Hara, and that's one of the show uh, show strengths. Like, no character is like pure evil, except for maybe Mister Buckley, who we'll get to later. But everyone has their own motivations that you can at least understand, even mm-hmm. if you if you even if you think uh, they're evil. Uh, at least you they get um you get where they're coming from. Uh, Lee is. You know, he's a like clean cut, he's he's a good looking, and I guess for probably a little too like open minded for, for his era. If he's like a cop and from the south and and white and, and a guy, you know, chances are he wouldn't have a lot of his beliefs. And and they signal that because he uh he used to be in love with uh, a black woman who was she like a slave on his plantation? No, I think the story was that uh 
it's unclear if it was his family's plantation or if they were just uh, like kind of like white sharecroppers or whatever. But the, I think the uh, I think the story was that they grew up together over there. Uh, they fell in love and then uh, you know they were like uh, you know hooking up in the barn and uh, one day his cousins came. Uh, saw them over there and like shot his uh, girlfriend in front of him. So he got really pissed and shot both of them and then ran away from Georgia, came to San Francisco like a lot of other uh, rascals did as well. And uh, just, you know, start fresh, I guess. Yeah. And he's like a fugitive and that you'll you get learn more about that later. Anyway, uh, Assam uh, meets Young June. I think he saves his life in, in some fight. So Young June is played by Jason Tobin, who most people will know from Better Luck Tomorrow. And Young June is Father June's son. And um, he's just this very, he's very like, let's say Epicurean. He loves sex. He loves drinking, um, but he's also deadly with knives. And he is the heir to this tongue. And he and Asam quickly become friends and and so forth. And then later you, you find out that the reason Asam is here is he's looking for his sister, who turns out to be Mai Ling, who is now the wife of the leader of the Longzi, who is named Longzi, who's this old man. And she's kind of become his his young lover, but um, it's it's all part of her grand plan to take over the Tong because her real lover is Lee Yong, who was either him the or rain. Young June. Yeah, um, yeah. You mean Joe Taslim, the guy who yeah. plays Lee Yong? Yeah, that's like one of those movies that I really should I watch. That, but cool. I really do think Lee Yong was either him or Young June were my favorite characters. Oh, uh, what about you guys? Like, did you guys have any favorite characters? Like, it's in particular, him and Assam. Wait, who's him? The one you're, Lee Joe Taslim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Philip or Arnav, what about you guys? Uh, I really liked uh, Young June. Like, I thought he was, uh, I think as a character, he's one of the most fascinating ones. Uh, I think that really comes to life in that, uh, in I think the fifth episode of season one, where they're, uh, you know, like stuck in the saloon on the way back from Nevada or something. And uh, the guy like, you know, sees Assam speak English for the first time, I believe. And you know, kind of like has this whole like moment where he's like, shit, I'm a Chinaman who's never been to China, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that whole angst kind of comes out throughout the show because there's tension between him and uh, like Father June because Father June never trusts him. But there's also uh, tension that he personally has because he's not a you know he's not fresh off the boat or you know like I don't know why they call all the all the all the like new immigrants onions, but he's I was trying not to figure that either. out too. Yeah. What what is that a reference to? I looked that up. Turns out they just totally made it up because Justin oh. Lin said that there's a lot. It, it, the slang, I think, I, well, this was according to Reddit. The actual word that uh, they used back then was little pig and they thought it would translate really weirdly. So they, he just said, let's make it up. And, and so onion has is it, just So that's something. why you can't find anything on it. Yeah. Which uh, mm-hmm. at first it's weird, but then you just get used to it. Cause yeah, I get used to it. Sister's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I really like Young June. I really like Assam because, you know, he's a badass. And again, like I think really well made, well written character. I actually liked Atoy and uh, Veg- like uh, Vega, like that uh, Mexican woman, quite a bit mm-hmm. as well. Like I thought they were really well done. And uh, Leary and Bill are both characters who I like to kind of like to hate, but I think they're really like well, like well executed characters. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I want to have like a long discussion later on Mr. Leary because I actually became a pretty big fan of his, despite the fact that he's a racist psycho. I did understand where he was coming from, so well, yep. we can save it out for later. But Philip. Uh, did you have a favorite character? I mean, definitely Assam for very superficial reasons. <laughs> He's just a, a character who is who just like absolutely oozes confidence and oozes, I think, Bruce Lee swagger. Like he's a great kind of, um, you know, almost reincarnation of what uh, a modernized Bruce Lee character would be. 
you know, during this era, even in the way that like, like, and I think like Andrew Koji does like an amazing job playing him, like even in the way that he like gestures during a fight, right, where they're like, you know, squaring up in between bouts and like, he'll make like a hand gesture, like come at me kind of thing, like things like that, um, you know, alongside like, you know, when he's not in fights, you know, sitting in the sending in the um, the uh, hopway colors and like smoking cigarettes and just like constantly scowling. Does he just like completely embodies that gangster badass, right? Which I think is just like a thing that probably maybe existed during that time, but we never got to see until now. And so I think like that that whole character does it quite well. He's not necessarily I think the best written character. I think in season two he you know he he gets a bit ambitious and stuff and like it's not super well done. I think there's other better, better written characters, including like theory and whatnot. But I just I just like you know can't get enough of seeing him on screen. So so I I like that portrayal of masculinity in this show, uh, like mm-hmm. like the way um, Assam is portrayed. So um, you know my my favorite era of martial arts films is the 70s and like philip said he is like a perfect um you know he's like a perfect like a reincarnation almost of the the bruce lee's and like the hiroyuki sonata characters and like sunny chiba Mm -hmm, all those mm -hmm. guys like i I love all those guys and then it's also a western i I like that kind of masculinity too like they're uh, they're kind of gravelly voiced and like they're loners Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, you know, those they, they had in both season one and two, they had the episode five and episode six, I think, where like the kind of mm-hmm. um, like intermission episodes, I want to call them, where they're yeah, like the go off. episodes, yeah. Yeah, they go away from San Francisco into like a more like different Western scene. The first one was like a kind of a, almost like a mini Western in one episode, almost like a, based on Seven Samurai, actually, to some extent. Um, oh, yeah. And then the second season was more of an Enter the Dragon tournament style thing, you know? That mm-hmm. was just like really, really like lovely to throw that in middle of the season gives us so much more style in a show that's already super stylish those are fucking awesome like both of them yeah super great philip actually that swagger you're talking about i thought i thought leong had that so much because he barely talks and he also look he has like that bruce lee haircut i mean that's totally superficial but (laughs) besides the point um yeah he just like never talks all you really see him is just kind of like walking behind my ling a lot because Mm -hmm. he he's not only her lover he's also her bodyguard Mm -hmm. and i i just got the sense that he, he just just is inc- just bought the sense that he's an incredible fighter, but Joe Taslim is an incredible fighter, yeah, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, like, I'm just Andrew gonna Cole- say Leong looks cool as fuck with that. Uh, I don't know what that. I don't know what that tradi- that slightly traditional looking outfit is, but uh, especially when he's fighting Zing in season two, and then in the you know like in the finale when they're fighting the Irish, he looks oh, yeah. uh, he looks fucking sick in that. Uh, like it's pretty amazing to see. Yeah, like Andrew Koji. I I I mean I I thought he was good, but. He he seemed too much like a male model kind of cosplaying <laughs> as a fighter because he, he's like yeah kinda, I don't think I think he's an actor first and then a martial arts a martial artist second oh yeah, yeah. He, and I he, think yeah. it's like Joe Taslim is a martial artist first and then an actor yeah he, he yeah. is trained yeah. though he is a trained martial artist I think he does a bunch of his own stunts um you know I'll, I'll comment on his nunchuck skills I think that <laughs> at the end of uh, season two he he does not impress me that much but we can talk about the <laughs> mechanics the mechanics of of the martial arts later because I think wow, it is harsh critic. <laughs> yeah 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 i'll just add one more thing uh chow isn't my favorite character but he's one that i grew more fascinated with throughout oh yeah and yeah. uh especially like uh towards the end when he and uh when he kind of like is forced to make that deal with my link to turn over jacob that was mm-hmm. like uh that was a really interesting that was a really interesting development for him because he's basically been so used to playing both sides and kind of like you know just staying out of it 
but uh, when it comes down to you know like turning over one of you know one of their own to, to the you know to the white people it uh, really like you know it really does bring out something in him right and you get hints of that throughout but uh, normally he's like pretty stoic just kind of like you know like this slimy ass character who again like plays every side against each other so he's an mm-hmm. inter- he's a guy who develops pretty interestingly I, yeah. I think the show is is like in terms of character development the show does a good job between the two seasons of just expanding the lore but also like the character backgrounds and the character motivations pretty much across all characters right like i, I think it's actually decently well written in that regard yeah I, that's why i like season two more in season one like season one i was like okay this is kind of okay season two is when i was like really hooked and that's because it expanded i think more beyond like Assam's martial arts quest to mm-hmm. uh you know say defeat Leong or or something like that and it, it became more of an ensemble piece where you got to see everybody's uh you know politics and motivations yeah but anyway so yeah let, let's speed through what happened so then oh you also meet Atoy who is like the madam runs like the most biggest most popular brothel in Chinatown but you also find out that at night she's this like sword wielding badass who kills uh the people who are killing you know Chinatown uh people and then awesome uh, like initially he, he like it looks like they're gonna have a relationship and, and they do hook up but it becomes more i thought of just like a friendship after that uh afterwards a partnership yeah. they even go like killing teddy boys together and then um asam really does find um my link yeah, i think we said that and then we also find out she's plotting with mr buckley who's like the deputy mayor who wants the there to be chaos so that he can be a part of passing the Chinese Exclusion Act, which he thinks is his way of climbing the political ladder. Assam also uh, happens to uh, intervene to save Penny Blake, who's the mayor's wife, from being attacked. And that begins uh, a short relationship between them. We we had some things to say about that. We thought it was a little, it was forced and it, it just didn't feel that natural. We can talk about that late, later. Uh, Meanwhile, Officer O'Hara's gambling addiction is getting the best of him, and he has to become a debt collector to the Feng Hai. It's a like more savage Mongolian tongue. They like drink raw milk and wear furs, and they they, they have tattoos on their faces. Uh, whose leader Zing is played by Dustin Wen of uh, Twenty One Jump Street fame. I couldn't believe it was him, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, he he looks. I, I love those face tattoos, and th- those do cool. look cool. Yeah, he looks pretty badass. <laughs> And then uh, eventually, uh, my my Ling kills uh, Long Z and assumes leadership of the Tong. And then the wars get so bad that, like, the Chinatown Business Association tells the the Tongs to settle it once and for all because you know it's getting too dangerous. And the, and the climax of season one is the fight between Assam and Leong. And uh, Leong beats Assam, who then kind of goes into a funk, is exiled from the hopway because they don't tolerate losers. And he begins his life of being uh, a, like a Chinese coolie. And then um, Penny's father passes away and then she inherits his factory. And that's that's pretty much the end of season one. And then season two, uh, you see Assam becoming a pit fighter in Rosalita Vega's, whom we mentioned, bar. And he's just trying to improve so one day he can beat Leong. Uh, we meet Sophie, who is Penny's sister, who has a weird lifelong crush on Mr. Leary. <laughs> we'll talk about that later because I thought that was... Is it we- lifelong or does she just like bump into... Does she bump into this gruff dude at the cemetery and she's like, I want to fuck you? Like, No, that, she I was mean- clearly stalking him. Like, why would you... She like goes was up she, to him. No, I, I, th- I thought it was basically like one of those very contrived love at first sight kind of things. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Yeah. Like she sees us like... Yeah. I think they knew each other uh, when she was younger because like I, I'm 
guessing that Mr. Leary was some kind of, you know, political boss type who, you know, the, obviously the mayor, you know, didn't want to really be seen with, but he probably need to rely on him for favors once in a while and stuff. And I think she knew him when she was little and always thought he was this, I guess, hot gangster. <laughs> I don't know. I know. Then, it's, it's almost irrelevant, right? Like, yeah. the whole thing feels contrived either way. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we can talk about that more later. And then um, we also... Uh, meet this character Nellie Davenport who's this kind of like white woman savior type who wants to free all the uh, prostitutes in the Chinatown brothels based on, and, a, based on, a, on, on a real person I believe mm-hmm. oh I'm sure there were like real types like her yeah, yeah. And like then, Atoy is based on a real on like a historic uh, madame also named Atoy oh cool, cool. and then Atoy is she resents her at, uh, a lot at first because she's like well she's not only trying to shut her business down but also coming here acting like she knows better and everything but Eventually, uh, Nelly shows her like her vineyard where she takes all these rescued uh, sex workers to, and then hey, hey, they end up having a, a romantic relationship, which um, which was cool. And then um, then uh, further tensions. Mister Leary is always trying to like sabotage any business that hires Chinese workers, which includes Penny because she needs protection from the Hopway to guard her factory and um, so forth. Uh, Young June is plotting to take over the Hopway and he's like coming up with his own opium deals to try to show up his father. And then um, when they start using Penny's factory as like a hideout for their opium, which uh, Mr. Lear blows up, which is why they have to go to that martial arts tournament that you Arnoff talked about before mm-hmm. to try to recoup those losses. And once they're successful, Young Jun successfully deposes his father because he shows that he's like modern and, and creative. There's an important point of clarification here, which is a lot of the stuff that led up to Young Jun's ascension is actually orchestrated by Assam behind the scenes, right? Right, right. Uh, be- because the whole story is that he is now like kind of committing to the lifestyle of being a gangster so he can get back at his sister who tried to have him killed in the last season. So yeah, a bit more complicated than that, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, um, and then there's this, uh, one of the big events is that, uh, so like the mayor and Penny have a pretty bad relationship, which is one of the reasons why Penny, uh, you know, and Assam have their thing because she just, she like hates her husband. But it gets so bad to a point where he is about to kill her because she keeps speaking up against him in public and kind of you know against his policies. And he's a drunk. He's and a, he's a he's drunk. A, and yeah. and he, yeah. he's a, he's, yeah, he's a, a drunk loser who loves and, uh, spending time in spending time in Chinatown brothels, which is that uh, too. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it implied he kind of like swings both ways? I yep. think there's it a, is. Yeah, yeah. In episode. I, yeah, one or two. I, in he's not by. just there, but in one of the uh, I think in the episode where the uh, where they raid one of the brothels. Literally, like they walk in, like a cop says, "Oh, good afternoon, Mr. Mayor." But like, as he walks into the room, he's like, "The guy's about to get spanked by like both a dude and a like woman sex worker." Mm-hmm. So it's just like, and you know, like given just the way he looks, like you know, he's I think Sophie calls him a walrus in one of the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, it's just like one of those, you know, it's one of those caricatures where you know, there's like some fat, slimy dude with an he ugly looks ass like mustache. he looks like Pete, he looks like fat Pete Campbell from the uh, from Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so basically he just looks like the kind of like sleazy ass dude you would see doing, you know, weird sex shit in a Chinatown brothel, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, so he's uh, about to kill his wife, like strangling her. But then at the last minute, Jacob, who is uh, Penny's manservant, no, I... comes from behind and strikes the mayor in the head and kills him. And this sets off a chain of events where, you know, the public gets news. Oh, you know, like a Chinaman killed the mayor. They hunt down jacob for for days they find him and they lynch him they they hang him up by one of the streetlights mm-hmm. and then the, the public thirst for blood is not satiated by that so they attack chinatown just start ransacking all these like businesses start attacking 
uh, you know, elders, women, hey, you know, does that sound familiar? And then mm-hmm. this causes the Hopway and the Longzi to put aside their differences and at least for a day, a fight back against these invaders. And that's like the, the climax of season two and probably the whole show. Chris wasn't kidding when he said that there was going to be a lot of spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he basically gave away the whole show, man. Yeah. And then... Um, <laughs> And then I that, haven't even made it super far to the show, and I'm like, oh, so that's what happens. Yeah, uh, sorry about that, Liza. But uh, and any listeners, I was spoiled. Hey, but hey, uh, we warned you. And then that—that's how season two kind of ends. And and the the last things you see is that Assam, there's like a mural painted of him, so he's become this like legendary figure, which I think sets up a very nice uh, plot point in season three because like Young Jun is now technically the leader of of the Hopway, but he's also kind of uncertain because Assam has the the hearts and minds of the people mm-hmm. and not only that but my ling now that she's kind of defeated uh it just happens to let it slip that Assam is her brother which now young jun thinks they're plotting against him so now young jun who's always been kind of insecure and you know he's been he's been more of as i said a degenerate than an actual like cold scheming gangster is now there the scene has been set for there to be uh, a falling out between Assam and young jun um, Zing, who was who's like the, one of the bad guys uh, for the leader of the the Feng Hai, he's been sent to prison, but looks like he's going to escape. And uh, Penny has been erroneously institutionalized by the evil Mister Buckley uh, because you know she she's a problem to deal with. So anyway, that sets up season three. Um, so that was like a oh, quick rundown. Oh, you forgot the one important part the two in the seasons. finale. Oh, which which part? Uh, so basically, uh, again, like major spoiler, but. Uh, so Myling, so Myling throughout the show is basically conspiring with uh, Buckley to, you know, uh, basic have more violence in Chinatown so she could take over the Hopway's share of the opium trade. And eventually she gets pissed off Buckley having way more leverage over her and kind of being able to call the shots, right? So in season oh, yeah, two, yeah, she yeah. hires a PI to uh, dig up some dirt on Buckley and finds out that he was a soldier in the Confederacy, which, you know, obviously is a bit of a no-no given that uh, there's still a lot (laughs) of lingering anti-Confederate sentiment in San Francisco. Uh, So basically at the end of season two, she uses a picture, that picture she finds of him in his Confederate uniform to essentially blackmail him and going after the Hawkway and going after all of the the businesses that they use for money laundering or extortion rackets or whatever. And so that's going to be a really interesting plot point in season uh, three as well, assuming season three happens. Mm-hmm. yeah so okay now that we got the, the story out of the way and we did some analysis in between but yeah let, let's get into what you know we think makes this show special because like after i watched the show it was one of those things where you know there's some good things you watch but then you never really want to talk about it afterwards because like okay that was good that was entertaining even like thoughtful but i got nothing to say after it but this show made me want to talk about it which is why i wanted to do this episode so um uh, any of you guys want to start off with, with a topic that really just jumped out at you as you watch this I mean, maybe we can start by saying like how many amazing parallels there are in the show to what's going on like today, right? Mm-hmm. In America, mm-hmm. right? Even things like, you know, the the Chinese are carriers of disease mm-hmm. as a plot point, not a plot point, but like as like a kind of descriptor throughout the show. Chinese labor destroying America, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, like yellow yellow peril, something they've actually literally said in the show several times uh, as a threat. It's just it's just too on the nose almost, right? To have this uh, come out at this time, I, and I guess season two came out during in twenty twenty, right? So it was during the pandemic mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, yeah. The 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 labor thing I I think is really key because it's come, but it's a little different this time because it's not exactly Chinese labor that's being 
uh, painted as a threat in America, but it's more just like Chinese businesses, even like corporations, like like a Huawei or something. These these aren't just cheap uh, laborers anymore. These are actual competitors uh, at at the highest levels, where it's whether it's like microchips or automobiles or solar technology or artificial intelligence. Uh, I, d- did you see that tweet? I forgot who did it, but he blamed racism in America on Chinese artificial intelligence. So oh, that's like, what? <laughs> this is the what? most galaxy brain take I've heard in a long time. Yeah, I think it, it was the guy who writes Dilbert or something. Uh, oh, yeah, that yeah, guy, yeah. Scott Adams. Yeah, that, yeah, that guy. Scott Adams. That maniac. So, yeah, yeah this, this, this insecurity <laughs> of against, uh, you know, China being... Uh, and, and by extension, all yellow people being a, a threat to American prosperity and order is, is incredibly relevant with each passing day. Um, and as I said, the show was uh, released in 2019, which was made, means it was made before. So it came just at the right time. And I and just in the last few months, even before, like, say, Atlanta or, or the rash of attacks, I saw more and more people writing about it at like mainstream publication because this was this was kind of like a sleeper show like it it, it mm-hmm. made some waves but it wasn't a, a huge like it wasn't like game of thrones people were like writing articles like the ringer was saying oh you know why warrior is the best show you're not watching mm-hmm. fox uh wrote a review of it that was very favorable so yeah yeah what's also interesting about the show too i think is that it it's kind of um well not the show but the history but the show tries to illuminate how you know we're at this point where like asian americans have not yet been formed but they kind of allude to it in a bunch of ways, right? Like, especially with the young, young June character, mm-hmm. where he talks about kind of like, you know, maybe, you know, the things we, we're, we're used to hearing, being between two worlds, not really accepted into the world, that that whole shtick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's an interesting exploration of that topic because it's not like the Chinese people here are like not Chinese, Chinese necessarily. They're not Asian American just yet. They're kind of like in the in-between at the moment, right? I think or not, you had, you had some interesting things to say about like how uh, these characters like, you know, relate to the white characters, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a so yeah. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics between all of them, right? Because you can uh, you can kind of like break down the characters into these two categories broadly. So like one is the guys who are the bosses of Chinatown, and the others are the ones who you know might be like bosses, like might be figures of influence within Chinatown, but also interface with the uh, with the you know with the world outside that is obviously dominated by white people over here. And so what's interesting is that, uh, you know, within Chinatown, uh, you know, a guy like Young Jun in, is basically a god, right? Uh, like he, you know, he runs a show, but Chinatown's a really small place. And if he steps half a mile away, he's outside of Chinatown where he's just another, uh, like, an odd, like another dude named John Chinaman, right? And uh, you see that name come up over and over, like they even use it for the name, use it for Zing when they, when they like uh, convict him of all the sword murders. Uh, so I think uh, so I think what so I think what you see end up seeing though is uh, characters like Chao and Atoy basically have to be overly reliant on uh, you know keeping white people happy uh, throughout right so Chao has to basically not only keep the dongs happy he also has to like you know bribe the cops quite a bit uh, you know like make sure give them information every now and then basically uh, you know dress in this like unnecessarily fancy suit all the time just to be you know just to be taken seriously. And on the well, flip I think side, I like doing that, but it also makes sense that it makes him the most presentable. Yeah, it makes him the most presentable, yeah. and it also, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, he has like his own history to it, right? Like having been a slave in Cuba and everything. But mm-hmm. uh, no, so that basic, so that, and then when you look at someone like Atoy, who has a ton of money, is you know incredibly sharp, incredibly, uh, you know, like just has her shit together. 
but you know she can't actually do anything with that money outside of Chinatown because nobody's going to do business with her so she has to find right. this white partner who white business partner who ends up you know trying to like literally trying to kill her because she wants uh, more out, she wants to get more of, out of it right so i think like kind of what that shows is this interesting parallel today where you know there's a lot of talk about Asians being white adjacent and you know like deriving all sorts of privilege from that and i think warrior kind of like just shows that it's a really bullshit concept because even the most white adjacent characters of the show don't really benefit from it. It just gives them maybe an mm-hmm. extra mm-hmm. degree yeah. of freedom. Assuming they like, you know, like keep their nose clean, like, you know, cow to the, the white right. guys all the time, that kind of thing. Right. But they're still limited to power only within their own community in this one by one square mile of Chinatown, right? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I, think, I think one of the best ways that the show kind of like uh, examines this idea of like, you know, being being between the two worlds is the way they handle language. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, they, yeah, that's uh, yeah. Explain how they do that. Yeah, so that they they show really well in the first episodes. You watch the first episode, you see that like as Assam's walking up to the Hopway gangsters for the first time, they're speaking in Cantonese with subtitles, right? And then they actually do this kind of like camera like turn where they they kind of fade from speaking Cantonese with subtitles to speaking like English, right? um in in like their own english uh you know accents so to speak right because you know justin tobin everybody else they're asian american actors they can speak english uh, fluently um and so you kind of get the sense of like when they're actually talking chinese but it's translated you know it's spoken in english just for the the benefit of um you know of the mostly english-speaking audience Uh, and when they're actually like speaking chinese chinese uh to you know sorry when they're speaking english to English-speaking characters, right, where they have like an accent, or they don't. In some cases, they don't even speak English at all, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, Young Jun like speaks only some words, right? He knows how to say like "motherfucker" <laughs> in English, <laughs> and not not a whole lot else. But it's 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 really interesting because you think about how confident they are when they speak English, right? As a as a guy speaking Chinese amongst each other, it, you know, they use slang. They have like you know flourishes. They like you know they can really throw swagger into their speech. But when they're speaking to white people and they have to like either, you know, struggle through English or like have a thick accent or whatever, like a toy, you know, you really see the dynamic of when you're in power, when you're not right, when you're with your Mm -hmm. people and when you're amongst white people. So that I thought was excellently done. I don't know if I've actually seen a show that's done, you know, language in this way, right? Because most shows either just like have you have them speaking English with a terrible accent or doing subtitles, right? Uh, But Mm -hmm. here they actually do a hybrid uh, I don't even know if I've caught a hybrid, but this new approach, was, which is really interesting, it works really well. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I thought, I mean, that may sound complicated if you haven't watched the show, but it, I, I, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, it makes sense. Because, it's very obvious when you see it. And it, it's perfect because, yeah, the, the alternative would have been to give these Asian American uh, Anglophone actors bad Asian, like generic Asian accents. I mean, like, why would they sound like that to each other and to us as the yeah. audience? You know, so, but it's perfect because you get the sense, yeah, when they speak to each other, they are speaking the language they are most comfortable with. Uh, for us in these modern times, it's English, but you know, just like same context transported back then, it would have been Chinese. But as soon as they're speaking with uh, non-Chinese people, they either can't speak or they have to struggle with English, and they they, they sound 
you know, just like less powerful and it's mm-hmm. really well done. How, the other kicker too is if you're, if you're a native Cantonese speaker like me, well, s- semi, um, the Cantonese from the non-Cantonese characters, like even Andrew Koji, who's, I guess, Japanese, Japanese, uh, British, mm-hmm. um, their Cantonese is fucking terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he's, he's really, really bad. And some are better, right? Like a toy is pretty good, yeah. but, uh, it really comes out. So this was like a really good compromise, right? To get the best of all worlds, I think. Yeah. It's like minimize the bad that asian exactly, language from yeah. the from the you know western born act yeah yeah, yeah yeah avoid a daniel day kim and lost situation mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah philip uh philip i remember you had something about uh the, the the like veneer of progressivism that certain characters have right like uh uh like you know like hong who sh- basically shows up as a hitman in season two being oh i fucking uh, love know, hong that guy is awesome. great. great hong's great he's funny as fuck yeah. Okay, let's talk about Hong. So Hong shows up in season two, fresh off the boat, and he's like kind of weird. He's like too happy, despite the fact that he was trapped in a boat for, I don't know, God God knows how many months. But, you know, he's, he's just like really eager to befriend Assam and, and young June. And um, like the first thing he says is, I, I want to I wanna get sticky, which is their slang for having sex. And the thing is, you find out that he's gay, which makes people at the very least suspicious of him but then he becomes very useful to them because he's he's an incredibly badass fighter mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and I thought it struck a good balance because I know all these shows want to act as if people even in like the 1870s was woke and everything so I don't really know how accepting they would have been of him but it makes sense because he's such a good fighter that I could believe that they wouldn't care be like okay this guy uh, is a killer and we want this killer on our side uh, not as opposed to not on our side. Yeah, he's also astute, right? He re- he reads the kind of motivations of Assam and and Young Jun like coming onto the scene kind of thing. Um, and he's like a he's like a nice guy to be around in a very dark world. Like he's he's a lot of fun to be around. He's a lot of fun in that kind of intermission episode in season two where they go to the tournament. Oh yeah, yeah he re- he really really loves his tacos. Yeah, there. and and they they do a great job of like introducing him as like an annoying dude who like I I knew from the way he was introduced like how fucking annoying he was that he was gonna be a fucking badass, right? <laughs> yeah. So it was great to see him uh, in that same episode break out in a street fight. Uh, but like they tra- you know they they show you. Assam and Young Jun turning towards liking him, right? You know, he yeah. had, like, I think Assam is at one point watching him fight. Says so like, "I'm getting to like this guy because he's like cracking yeah. skulls and shit," right? Yeah, so yeah he's, he's like great. taking guys like one on five. Like, yeah, yeah. We, want, we want this guy as a friend. Yeah. yeah, and so how that kind of crescendos is that they they're having breakfast uh, in the halfway you know dining room one day, and some of the other gangsters are like starting to pick on on uh, Hong by like calling him out for you know being a cocksucker or whatever, and uh, Young Jun just like fucks that guy up. And it's just like, you know, he's, he's, this is not tolerable. He's on our side, you know, don't give a fuck who he fucks. Right. Um, and you really, get, you do have to ask to some extent, like things like that and things like the Lee character, right. Who we can get into as well. Like mm-hmm. how likely do these progressive characters, you know, how likely are they in, in that world in that time? You know, like, is it like the only Southern guy in the show is like an anti-racist, right? You know, um, <laughs> but at the same time, like you, I, I, I kind of like seeing, that. I actually like the Lee character just because he showed the kind of, you know, the humanity that still rests within people, despite the fact that like everyone else is so like flagrantly racist, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, throwing out the word chink like it's nothing everywhere. Right. And then you mm-hmm. see this guy come and like kind of look at things objectively, you know, eating sausage during the festival and like O'Hara tells him it's dog and cat meat. And he's like, you know what? Americans were like this too if they were starving. Right. Like shit like that. 
Was, now, was I don't this... know if I believe that. I mean, people are so fucking racist about dog meat now, anyway. But yeah, I guess it's, it's yeah. Nice. But he, you know, but I, and I'm saying like his character is not necessarily believable, but I think mm-hmm. it's still appreciated, right? Oh, I don't yeah, think for it, sure. I don't think it makes him a badly written character, right? I think his arc is better in season two uh, mm-hmm. after he gets fucked up by the the Fung Hai. But uh, going back to Hong, I, I draw parallels to Tony Soprano's treatment of Vito. I don't know if you guys watch The Sopranos. But there, there's a whole arc where Vito turns out to be gay. And Tony is like surprisingly mm-hmm. woke about it. But mainly because Vito's a good earner. He's a captain who brings in a lot of money for him. So uh, he is his tolerance is rooted in the fact that he, uh, is, is like his self-interest, which is more believable than, than him or, you know, Young Jun and Assam doing it out of pure principle and, and you know, open-mindedness back in, back in their environment. Which what about the scene where uh, a couple of black folks walk into the Banshee, the uh, Irish oh, pub? Oh, that was a really, that was a really well-executed scene. Because yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why yeah. I really like Mr. Leary and why I think he's a compelling villain is because he's not just some raging white supremacist taken from uh, you, you know, our, our modern uh, stereotype of like a mega uh, loser. Mm-hmm. He actually has a, a coherent worldview, as repulsive as that is to most people, as it should be. It makes sense. He's, he, you know, he comes from a hard life. He, you know, he practically probably witnessed a cannibalism back in Ireland before he had to immigrate. And his, his people aren't doing that well. It's not like the Irish immigrants, just because they're white, uh, have fared that well in, in America. Mm-hmm. And now he sees all these new laborers come in and it's not like, it's not like the Chinese are being treated well either and they're being exploited for their cheap labor. And he's like, okay, I get where this guy's coming from. And in, in the scene that you guys are talking about, he sees, uh, in, he owns a bar. A couple of black patrons come in and his bartender is giving them uh, a shit time. And then he it, he basically says that, you know, he doesn't like black people. He doesn't want to be friends with them. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to have any relationships with them. But he accepts them as Americans, at least, because they've been in the country for a long time. They have paid with their blood and labor and everything, unlike the Chinese who are essentially just freeloading off their hard work. I, I saw that scene and I was like, wow, this guy is so committed to hating Chinese people that he only <laughs> hates Chinese people. <laughs> but that's also sentiment in America, right? Because there is a sense that, yeah, you, you can be racist against black people and hell maybe even like latinos but in a sense they're at least more american than these asians and you know south asians who 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 are just like johnny come lately's all all they do is take they haven't given anything and they're just as likely to skedaddle back to their countries who some of them are are kind of like better off in america now in terms of in especially in east asia so there's that resentment that they don't particularly have for people uh for the other minorities Mm -hmm. Uh, one one topic of conversation I do want to get into is this reminded me of uh, like an Asian American version of Inglorious Bastards in that it is a fantastical kind of like wish fulfillment revisioning Completely of history. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, we know that these we know Bruce Lee didn't kick uh kick asses uh, during you know the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It is, I think, an expression of an Asian American desire to have had someone like that or even to have someone like that right now, especially. Yeah, but that, like, the alternative is so much worse. Like, I like this better. Oh, right, right, right. So it serves that fulfillment. And what really astounded me about Warrior is I think that wish fulfillment that is among Asian Americans is so suppressed because it is seen as incredibly dangerous. This is why, like, Asian Americans are not allowed to get angry. We're only allowed to get sad. We're only allowed to ask for help. And if... 
Please we're good see enough. me. Acknowledge my humanity. Yep. Yeah. Acknowledge yeah. my humanity. Because um, mm-hmm. does Warrior humanize Asian Americans? I I don't really know if it does because there are a lot of despicable Asian Americans or at least... Well, then yes, it does. Yeah, yeah it, it does. 100% does, man. I mean, oh, like, no, what, are we only victims? No but, way. No, but in the kind of uh, like blue check Hollywood way in which you can... Oh, like, that's so can fucking only really boring, be good. Man. Yeah, so but it humanizes us in a, in a real, actual way. So, I, Chris, I was actually thinking about, um, because I've been trying to watch as much of, of Warrior as I could this week, mm-hmm. and at the same time, I'm like trying to, um, there was this book that I checked out from the library to read with the kids, and it's called um, Blackbird Fly by Aaron and Trada Kelly, who is a writer who's, um, whose stories I actually really enjoy reading with the kids. But this book in particular, like... Um, She's a Filipino-American author, and this book is middle grade, which means it's for ages 8 to 12. Mm-hmm. And when I was I – t- I like to read or at least skim the books before I read it with the kids. And, like, the book itself is, like um, – this is the kind of representation that I think that blue check liberals absolutely love, but it – does not accomplish anything. Cause I'm like, if I read this to my kids, they're just going to think that being Asian sucks because the book is about this little Filipino girl who's mm-hmm. growing up in like a, a really white suburb and she goes to a really white school and like her immigrant Filipino mom is so verbally abusive and strict and never lets her do anything like go to the movies or the mall or go to sleepovers. Mm. Oh, no. And then oh, she like sucks. goes to school and she's, she feels really bad because she gets bullied for being slant eyed and like being yeah. dark skinned. Um, and then like, you know, you can guess what the end looks like, you know, her mom becomes a little bit more. Americanized, and yeah, more mm. liberal, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, and like I was comparing it to Warrior because I knew that this topic would come up, and I'm just like, this isn't the kind of humanity that I want the kids to see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't not, want not- them to be seen as victims, like because right now they're so young that they don't they don't know what that is. They don't they don't think about being Asian as being like some sort of victim or like even with all the hate crimes that they see in the news, they don't yeah. see it as something like I, why won't they see us as humans like we are? Why won't they acknowledge that we're just like them? They don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I actually think yeah. that the blue check liberal um, idea of of uh, representation and like identity, I think it's more damaging than like something like warrior. Yeah, I'd I mean, rather abs- have the revisionist. I'd abs- rather, a- yeah, absolutely. As short as, right, as, short as I hope, there's a PG thirteen cut of Warriors you can show your kids later. <laughs> With all the sex scenes cut out. <laughs> yeah, we, I need I need to have like because it's so skinamaxy that like <laughs> I would love to watch this with the kids, but the problem is that like. Um, the sex scenes, like, there's no warning. There, there's no like romantic music and like you know, like kissing and hugging. It's just all of a sudden they're in it. You know, like, yeah. it's all like animal <laughs> oh, yeah. sex. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, on that note, I would say like uh, I totally agree with you, right? Especially with kids at a younger age. If you are only fed this kind of like you know blue check uh, content that completely you know, demoralizes you from that age, you internalize some really bad ideas, which is, I think, precisely why we, you know, there's this generation of roughly millennial era, maybe some Gen Xers, you know, who have fallen into that trap, right? Yeah, a bunch of sad sucks. Yeah, and like Warrior is kind of coming 2019, 2020, at around that inflection point we're starting to see now where like people who did not go through that bullshit are starting to see better content about themselves, right? And and this is, I think, a really great piece, especially for guys, right? Um, Mm -hmm. 
that wasn't around until now. And uh, there is um, uh, a Hari Kondabalu, I think I, I don't know his last name, tweet recently where he talks about how like, you know, South Asian men, Asian men have been tra- trained to believe that they're ugly. And it's a really glorious moment the minute you figure out otherwise, right? And like who perpetuates that though? It's like, it's Asians themselves. Yeah, like they bought into it. Yeah, things like we're not ugly, and it's like, wait, 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 why are you even bringing it up? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. if you if you if you feed them that shit, a generation in, they're going to be making the media, and they're going to be you know reproducing the same bullshit, right? So, so we're at this point where we're kind of escaping from that, and I think like for for Asian guys especially, like watching this show is a great way to kind of deprogram yourself from that bullshit. I think in another way it does that is that it uh, it's similar in some ways to like black exploitation films from the seventies in the sense that it kind of shows you know quote unquote CD underbelly of uh, this area this era in Asian America. Yeah, but it also like mm-hmm. stylistically, right? Like the costumes, mm-hmm. even if like even the tong suits, like yeah, they're like three piece suits, but they have that uh, Chinese style collar. Uh, the oh, soundtrack I, the suits. Like, I gotta get me one yeah. of those suits. Oh yeah. They yeah, look so pretty good much, pretty badass. But even the soundtrack, right? Like the end of every episode has uh, some Chinese hip hop song. Uh, I don't speak any yep. Cantonese or Mandarin, so I can't understand it. But uh, yeah, it just sounds like some badass shit and it sounds like something very much uh, you know, like made uh, like made by Asian people for Asian people. Mm-hmm. And with the idea of, you know, uh, and, you know, with the idea of, hey, this is not going to be some, you know, like dreamy, like sad, uh, you know, like uh, you're joking, you're joking bullshit. It's going to be a bunch of like, it's going to be a bunch of Asian people who are fed up and kicking ass as a result, as a result of it. Yeah. Eliza, to your point about that that middle grade book, I mean, I don't need to tell you about this. We talk about this all the time, but there's there's a reason that, that they do that, right? Because in the current, status quo setup the way you become relevant and what you get social currency is by being a victim that's why all these asian americans are always pushing the you know we're the victim finding things to complain about when they really shouldn't there we often talk about, yeah well especially with something like cultural Solving appropriation racism by finding racism everywhere yeah right and, and <laughs> i think this is the alternative uh which is mm-hmm. it's not only a wish fulfillment fantasy but philip you touched on this it's a very masculine wish fulfillment fantasy like the desire to no, like, i like it too i love that yeah, and the desire mm-hmm. to to kick back uh, i mean not kick back like kick, like kick ass uh not not like assimilate and you, you also notice that one thing I noticed is that pretty much all the like interracial relationships in this uh, show are between the Asian men and non-Asian women. I mean, Assam gets with Penny, uh, Rosalita later. Young June is, shall we say, very open-minded. I mean, you see him with like Native American women, uh, Mexican women. I mean, he, he also Asian women. And he loves going to uh, toys. He's he's basically their he's best customer. He's also a total hopeless romantic man. Like when he falls. Oh yeah, the yeah. He, he gets the woman. feels. He gets the feels. Like I, yeah. I think he really in the episode where they're in that, uh, that bottle episode when they're in that like saloon and they, it's that Seven Samurai inspired episode. Mm-hmm. I, I think he really falls for the the Native American prostitute there, right? But then he yeah. uh, gives her like some gold and and makes her run away before like the, the bad guys come yeah but even in that episode the, the one of the owners of that saloon is an asian guy and i thought this was a, one of the cringier parts of the whole show but he talks about how he came to america to find his gold mountain and then and at the end of the episode he basically says oh yeah i, I may not be rich but i found my gold mountain it's, it's his like white wife and i'm just like oh come on but it is something you really don't see because I think if something like that happens, it's usually you. I think you would see like an Asian woman with a white man, at least with Asian Americans uh, in in more modern times. That's how the interaction between the the races 
uh, worked. Uh, but this is like also a time period when there really weren't that many Asian American women because there were there was like the um, all sorts of immigration laws that were passed. Yeah, one uh, historical yeah, note about that is that uh, so the timing of the Tong Wars is uh, slightly different in the show and in you know like in real life. Uh, so in real life, if I recall correctly, the Tong Wars basically started after the Exclusion Act, and mm-hmm. started. And part of the reason why the Tongs were so big in the first place was because uh, the Exclusion Act essentially prevented uh, unmarried uh, Chinese women from coming to the U.S. Right. So a lot of the ones who ended up coming basically ended up getting uh, were you know essentially brought in as sex workers by the by the Tongs and triads and. Uh, essentially ended up in, uh, you know, in Chinatown uh, as sex workers because of that, right? And they got like fake paperwork or whatever to get in. Uh, so the Tong Wars really started in full force around 1888, if I recall correctly, and uh, continued and basically escalated till the 1906 earthquake when a lot of the businesses and a lot of the physical cash and wealth was just destroyed by the earthquake and the fires after that. So it's basically one of those things where yeah, the, histo- the hist- historical context is a bit off. But uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense because uh, there was an active campaign to prevent uh, Asian women from coming to uh, coming to America at that time, and an active campaign to like you know stop uh, Asian men from marrying non-Asian women, right? Like through anti-miscegenation laws and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, it just brings that context to life really well. The excuse against letting Asian American, not Asian American, Asian women immigrate was uh, they said, oh, they're they're all like prostitutes and they're going to corrupt morals which i I think what was part of it i think the bigger scheme was to make sure that asian americans couldn't have future generations in america right because if Mm -hmm. you don't let women immigrate but you don't let the men intermarry with the people who are already there they're going to die out in a generation and it was population control uh simple as that it's a localized genocide right that's really what it was and you know you hear about like bachelor societies popping up there and i mean recently i read uh, america's in the heart by carlos bulosan really good book yeah, great book. I highly recommend it. it. It's it's like a memoir of of this guy who who grows up in the Philippines and then immigrates to America. And everywhere he goes, it's it's basically just a bunch of Asian American men because there were no women, uh, and and the few women Asian American women who were there were prostitutes. So they're all either having relationships with them or non Asian prostitutes, which always gets them, uh, which gets like the the non Asian men uh, angry. So then they'll get attacked for. You know, having a, a Mexican wife or or like a, a white girlfriend or something. So it's a very different time period, um, which you know is very different from I think the Asian American culture that has sprung up since say 1965, which is we uh, call them manongs if you're Philam. Uh, what what are manongs? Like Carlos Bulasan, that generation. Oh yeah, yeah, and and yeah, I think that generation is, is largely forgotten because like our collective memory is is pretty very focused on post 1965. Which I think is much more middle class uh, or middle class aspiring. It's much less. Well, he focused, you know, towards the end of his book, um, he talks a lot about like labor organizing. And, oh like, yeah, yeah, that's he, like you know, his. He, he was like he was like red flagged by uh, by the government for being so socialist. Yeah, like the last third is basically like an organizing manual for mm-hmm. farm laborers and and other types of. Uh, workers like that and that's all been forgotten um or suppressed i would even say for this much more middle class assimilation as friendly post 1965 narrative which i think if you had to sum it up in in a certain like story type that may or may not be entirely fair but i think immediately 
everyone knows what you're talking about is like the Joy Luck Club. You know, something like that is very uh, emblematic of post-1965 Asian-American culture, uh, which does not allow for this type of warrior-like anger and fury. Um, mm-hmm. And It's also very woman-centered. Well, yeah, and I, I think it's, it's purposely like that because I think, uh, you know, they're seen as more easy to assimilate. And we see this happening with, say, Black Americans um, as the... You know, with you know, say like the rise of, of Obama as America's first family, I think a similar type of middle class aspiring assimilationist mindset has set into Black America. So, whereas even in like say the '90s and 2000s, um, you know, Black culture was very much defined by aggressive hip hop and things like that. Nowadays, what is contemporary Black culture? It's like insecure. I mean, the show, not not like the sentiment. Uh, Lovecraft Country, whatever like Lena Waite is doing. So it, it's not... Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay, yeah. So it's not exclusive to to Asian Americans. It is, I think, a type of just this thing that, that can happen to a culture depending on, on you know, what forces it's are being all, exerted on it. It all revolves it. around representation somewhere mm-hmm. and very, like, um, very visible. Like, we're not talking about representation and, like, you know... Uh, in education where it's like, you know, K through 12 teachers, we're talking about like uh, representation in like um, media, movies, um, government, you know, business executives. Or like getting even more narrow, it's like not even just any media, it's basically two kinds, right? Like one is, you know, the prestige TV stuff that uh, Chris just described. And then the other kind is, you know, the super mainstream blockbuster Marvel stuff, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the guys over at Champagne Sharks talk about this a lot, but uh they basically, yeah, basically one trend that you kind of see sometimes is a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people who are, you know, like big on Twitter or like, you know, write think pieces a lot, like basically professional think piece writers suddenly getting gigs for writing <laughs> yeah. comic books or like just getting gigs for writing comic books, right? And it's weird because, I mean, even growing up in India when I was a kid, like comic books were like, you know, like kind of nerdy, like you liked them until you were 12 and then just didn't, right? And so or writing weird to- the next blockbuster YA novel. Yeah, exactly. The next blockbuster YA novel or, you know, like getting your own Marvel movie, which is basically a rehash of like 15 other movies at this point. So it's kind <laughs> of like, it's kind of basically, uh, yeah, it kind of basically get, I get the sense that it ends up being a fight for these sloppy seconds or whatever, like, you know, some, usually some white guy, sometimes not a white guy uh, wrote earlier. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, the cool thing about something like Warrior is that it just kind of flips that on its script, right? On It flips that whole script on its uh, on its head, right? Uh, and you know, just goes and just kind of, kind of creates a really, really fun ori- original story that is infinitely more compelling than uh, I don't know, like whatever Shang Chi is going to be like. Oh, <laughs> imagine, imagine if Shang Chi. I know it's not going to have this warrior mindset, but imagine if it did. That would be so cool. But I'm sure it won't. Um, oh, I, I want to talk about the the big climactic fight in Chinatown because we can't talk about wishful film and fantasy without talking about that. But I also want to make this observation I had while watching this. I I knew this was like a show that was made for kind of like Asian guys because Atoy gets into a relationship with a white person, but it turns out to be a white woman. Because I, I think there's probably something in their mind where they were writing, is like, oh, we can't do this again, where uh, she is with a white guy. But we already have the Asian woman with an Asian man, which is Mai Ling uh, and Lee Yong. So they're like, okay. And they throw like every, almost every interracial co- combo in it, right? Because well, you got you Officer Lee with his... attractive than those two, though? Who, Mai Ling and <laughs> Lee Yong? Yeah. Oh, I, I, they're... <laughs> look, 
I will admit, I've I've got a man crush on Lee Young. He, I, if I wanted a boyfriend, Lee Young would be it. Like, a, he never talks. Two, he he'll like defend you wherever. If someone looks at you the wrong way, he'll kill him. And three, <laughs> yeah. he he's he's got a great body. You know, so yeah, what it's, more it's can you ask for? True. He's the All of that's true. All of that's true. But I'll say I'll say this much: Assam has a sexy ass beard. So uh... no, he's he's very good. Look- I, I think he's too good looking. I, I, that's why I didn't buy him. Uh, he's like too. His his he's got the perfect shadow every time, and I, you know it's like even when he's like a coolie, he's got the perfect <laughs> Gillette sh- like uh, shadow, and like um you could be a little scruffier, you know if you're. I kind of get vibes of like Goku about to go Super Saiyan from him whenever he's you know like in one of the fights, <laughs> and, and you yeah. know like they they very conspicuously show his that his face has been beaten up, right? Like either there's some scratches or like it looks like he's working off a couple of black eyes or something. And you know, and all of that. So he just looks like he's just gonna like go ape shit, you know, like suddenly his hair's <laughs> gonna be on fire or some shit like that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty. It, he's, but yeah, great beard. So uh, yeah, sorry, Chris, I'm gonna agree to disagree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, are you are you uh, on the Leong boat or the Assam boat? I'm on the Assam boat, but I, I do. I, what I like about Leong actually is in season two, he gets this kind of. He starts to see like that. Um, my Ling is kind of becoming too conniving. Oh yeah, he you starts know? softening. He looks like a softy. Soft- yeah, 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 yeah. Which I actually like to see that because he's such a hardened, you know, yeah. badass that like to see that side of him, to see him kind of see the light, was interesting to give him a bit more depth as well. Yeah, it's also an interesting gender reversal, right? The the more ruthless, violent person being the woman, and and the man being kind of like yeah. the, the softy person who actually is kind of wants peace more than more than war. Yeah. Um, Has anybody oh. called it misogynist yet in the the blue check lib crowd? Um, I've I read this article written by a guy for the LA Review where he brought up a point where he said um, kind of like there wasn't enough focus pay, uh, played to the female characters, but I thought I thought the female characters were quite strong. And I, before I forget, there's a brutal brutal scene in which Atoy is assaulted by two assassins sent mm-hmm. by her former business partner. And you know how there's a lot of complaint, especially in action movies, where you have like a heroine who is who's like a good fighter about it being unrealistic like you got this woman who's like a hundred pounds beating up guys who are like 300 pounds mm-hmm. and you know doing like judo flips and and you know <laughs> taekwondo kicks and beating them up i thought this fight was handled really well because it was clear that she couldn't overpower them physically so she had to resort to some really just violent and desperate mm-hmm. measures whether it's like i don't know gouging someone's eye out with a candlestick or something mm-hmm. and oh my gosh she gets so bruised up that yeah, it's, oh, yeah that i've never horrible. seen i've never seen anybody let alone a woman have such like a a just pulverized face after a fight and i thought and you know in most fights a guy takes like 10 punches to the face and he's got like a little a scratch under his <laughs> under his eye and and you know uh, but you watch that and, and and the injuries last for days right several episodes yeah. she's like yeah. in bed and i was just like oh my god this this show not only handled a fight well but also handled like the consequences of a yeah, fight math, really yeah. well yeah yeah I think one disappointment, and I guess this is relevant because uh, my one disappointment I had with the show was uh, basically Diane Dewan's uh, performance as Mai Ling. Like, you know, she's supposed to be like this kind of like kind of psycho conniving, uh, like head of the tongue, right? Uh, but I just didn't get that vibe. Like, it just felt really flat. And mm-hmm. I don't know if any of you guys picked up on that either, but it felt kind of flat. And to me, that kind of uh, I guess it didn't ruin my Ling's character, but it did kind of make me make her not as compelling uh, to me because I never really got a sense of okay, what's actually you know, what's actually driving her, right? Like, yeah, there's this whole backstory that she has about 
uh, escaping this abusive warlord and then coming here and all of that. But uh, yeah, I didn't really get a good sense of what's, you know, like making her this, you know, like conniving psycho that's trying to just take over Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like, like the key thing that really drives Awesome as well is his is his like love hate relationship with his sister. But uh, you know, you kind of forget about that, and I think the show kind of realized it because like season two is is less about, as I said, Awesome's personal vengeance, mm-hmm. and you know, on the flip side, Mai Ling's also love hate relationship for him, and becomes about the bigger picture of you know Chinatown's uh, conflict with with the rest of America. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I think part of it has to do with. I always found the way she talked a little odd, like she was trying yeah. to enunciate every word too much, which um, I think took away a bit away from her performance. But I, I think the the show's strong enough that, you know, I didn't think like Asan was a particularly interesting character either. But even then, even though I didn't find the main character that compelling, uh, the rest of the characters were more than enough to make up for that. All right. So I want to talk about the, the big uh, fight, which is uh, the highlight of the show for me. And it, it's, you know, it's quite, you know, it does send like a chill down your spine when you see the Tongs who have been fighting for like 99% of the show be, being, you know, like, okay, for, for this one time, let's let's link up and kill these racist motherfuckers. And I think for Asian Americans, like, when is the last time you've we've seen something like that uh, where, you know, you don't you actually fight back as opposed to begging for acceptance or wanting to assimilate or any of that crap. And um, I mean, a lot of things that you see written about in like you know, in Asian American writings, is all about oh, Asians are like well, our Confucian culture teaches us to be passive, or it, it we're meant to like keep our heads on back. No, you look, you look at the history of Asia, and <laughs> it's the most violent, uh, degrading, um, often inhumane like uh, stories you'll ever hear of like people rising up or suppressing things or fighting each other. It's only in Asian America that we're taught to to be these like spineless wimps and it's all conditioning and I, and I think it's the fact one of the factors is th- attitudes as exemplified in this show aren't allowed to exist I'm not saying that if this show existed like 20 years ago every Asian American would you know be standing up for themselves but it's because this mindset is very feared and suppressed so w- what do you guys think I think again just linking this to what's happening today really makes me think about like the the kind of like Asians with attitude crowd on IG and people trying to like form these um kind of n- neighborhood patrols in light mm-hmm. of the recent mm-hmm. violence like yeah. I don't, no one's you know no one's fucking up random people on the streets or anything like that but there's now a push to say like hey we're going to take things you know uh you know th- we're going to actually do something ourselves about the situation rather than just wait passively. I think there's a link there that's interesting, right? Again, showing that Warrior is a well-timed show mm-hmm. alongside, you know, an inf- inflection point in Asian American confidence. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. I mean, we see what happens with Jacob, right? He does the right thing. He stands up and defends uh, you know, some women from being killed and he gets lynched. And we're not literally going to get lynched these days, but... Uh, we even see it well, when an Asian gets attacked, um, unless it's by the absolute perfect perpetrator, like in the Atlanta shootings. There are always questions about, well, you know, this is, you know, this is Asian deserve it. Like, is their family racist or something? You know, yeah. you see that kind of stuff. So that's why Asians don't fight back because we know that we'll get like figuratively lynched um, in in the court of public opinion. So you know, we we just hope to survive whatever happens to us, and then we'll ask for like restorative justice or something afterwards. We know that's the right way to make everyone like us because we think the way 
we, we the only way we can survive is to be liked and, and humanized. Yeah, though, I, so I think there's uh, the show, I think the timing of the show is really great for that reason, actually, because uh, this is a recurring theme throughout the show, right? Like they, like in the beginning, they pick up Assam for a bunch of murders that he didn't, uh, he didn't commit just because he was like, he was the first Asian guy they found. And there's kind of this under, under there's kind of like this underlying theme, I think J- Jacob explicitly vocalizes it, where he says, Oh yeah, no. They like they they'll pick up a Chinaman for anything. They imagine what they'll do to one who's suspected of murdering the mayor, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think this kind of serves two purposes. One, it kind of shows that yeah, you're gonna be attacked, uh, frankly, no matter what, just because you know you look, you know, just just because you look a certain certain way. And a good parallel to that today is basically the way a lot of scientists, uh, in scientists of Chinese descent in the U.S. have been persecuted for having uh, you know like quote unquote ties to the CCP in China. When you know it turns out to be a, like a lot of bullshit and a coordinated, uh, you know, a co- coordinated uh, harassment campaign by from the Department of Justice, right? Uh, there's like a prominent MIT professor who got, uh, you know, randomly arrested for that, and pretty much the mm-hmm. entire MIT faculty was uh, like shocked and disgusted by that. And you know, and I think I don't think he, I don't know if charges are going to go through, but uh, this guy was just doing like was just one of the most well-respected guys in his field and still got it, still got it, uh, got uh, you know, attacked by the uh, by the FBI for it. And so I think it kind of it. So I think there's always an undercurrent of rage around this among Asian Americans in general, and I guess about 20 years ago among uh, you know like uh, brown people in America, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Just over being attacked for that. And Warrior is like kind of one of those. It's kind of like a it kind of is very cathartic, right? Like uh, I just watched that scene a couple of hours ago, and mm-hmm. uh, the best part about it was the fact that you just suddenly felt all your uh, like all of the anger that you're building up suddenly being released because. You have all of Chinatown's best fighters coming together and just like you know, like literally splitting this, these guys, these Irish guys' skulls open. So I think it kind of serves that similar kind of catharsis. I think there's a desire for that uh, at the very least in film, but like I think more pertinently, like there's a desire to see Asians coming together and be like, yeah, we're gonna split open a few skulls, uh, figuratively, of course. I think they, I think they literally sp- spell out the. I think a psalm says to Young Jun, like either we don't do anything and they kill us, or we do something and they'll come and kill us. But we should at least. At least the conclusion that reaches, we should do something, yeah. right? As opposed to the conclusion that Asian Americans have reached up to this point, it's like we should just, you know, blame it on white supremacy, blame it on anti-blackness, and then do nothing, right? That's a, an exact parallel to what we're seeing with the violence against Asians, like the the option from our fucking leaders, academics, you know, these uh, these fucking activists to do nothing, say a lot no, of shit and do nothing, right? They'll hold, hold like a candlelight vigil and write uh a semi uh, angry New York Times opinion piece right and that will that will solve everything right yeah at this point I think they just all of those pieces are just probably written by an AI and they just I don't know like randomly <laughs> generate a byline or something that chi- uh, Chinese AI maybe I don't know mm-hmm. yeah uh, so actually one uh, so I think uh, Philip I think you uh, wrote about this on the doc and I think it's a pretty interesting topic to go into so assuming there's time we should probably go into it and that's basically about the casting and of uh, like uh, of a bunch of Hapa actors as Assam and then I guess uh, Young June as well, uh, and kind of what that uh, kind of what if that the implications that has if any, uh, and so I think Assam's character is explicitly explicitly written to be a quarter American. Like I think his grandfather was a American mm-hmm. sailor who ended up staying in China, uh, got sick, fell in love with his nurse, and uh, like went went to a farm and raise their kids there. Uh, but uh, yeah, like uh, there are a couple of implications of that, right? Because 
there is a you know there is a trend of casting uh, Hapa Asian male actors as full Asian as full Asian characters, and uh, you know people have been you know talking saying that okay maybe that is a little problematic. So uh, I'm not like East Asian, so you uh, want you guys take it away. Well, this one I. Like, I, I definitely think that's an issue. This one I had the least problem with because first of all, like Andrew Koji is like one of the most Asian looking hoppers I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not really have known unless you said. So I think that's one key. And also Jason Tobin is an incredible actor. I mean, he was I- amazing in, in Better Luck Tomorrow, the Andrew best Koji's actor. Andrew half? Yep. Oh yeah, that's my point. <laughs> Especially with his last name. You I didn't, real- no, I didn't you- realize you were talking about him the whole time because I couldn't see it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to tell. Maybe if you once you know and you're really looking for it, um, but yeah, on the surface, it's really hard to tell. And I think Jason Tobin is is such a good actor. Plus, he also also another really Asian looking Hapa. Yeah, I could. I didn't know either of them were Hapas until I looked them up. Yeah, one point I want to make is that Youngju is actually kind of similar to Virgil from Better Luck Tomorrow. I don't know if you've ever seen the two, but. Uh, after I watched it, I realized Youngjun is kind of like what You're Virgil right. yeah. would have been back in that day and if he was more connected because Virgil is also he has this like you know suppression of, of rage that is masked by this playfulness yeah. he's and impatient like a, he's a hothead impa- right yeah, yeah he's a hothead and everything and that's why I, I really hope a season 3 happens because I think you will see more of that Virgil oh, yeah. the, the one that you know in, in that came out in Better Luck Tomorrow the, the more conflicted like a guy season 3 so that <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I want my kids to see. I just, I just can't, um, you know. Uh-huh. Why well, did we can edit for you, for Liza? Too mature. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can edit. Um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Also, there's, there's like those scenes. In, remember, there's a really horrific scene where uh, you see uh, Atoy and her, and she has like that girl that comes from her village takes her under his wing, her wing because they're both really good at sword and so they raid this um this brothel where like all these young girls are being kept as prison yeah you probably don't want you really don't want kids to see that that's uh that's i mean really... there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't, I don't want them to see but like this is like this is as as an alternative to what's so widely available for kids their age i'm mm-hmm. like something more of this you know no, no <laughs> more blackbird fly they don't need to hear about filipino kids getting bullied in school and like you know they they don't it's not their experience yeah. And it's not or, how mm-hmm. they view other Asians. Yeah. Or, or if they're getting bullied. Because, I mean, we see a lot of Asians getting bullied, to say the least, yeah, here. Do. But they fight back. And that's the right. part that, that's never shown. Um, it's always like, turn the other cheek or, or you know, get them to love see you. See how American or, I really am. Yeah. Like, here, they're just like, no, f- mm. <laughs> no we'll, <laughs> we'll just swing this a flail in your face. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll just slice you open instead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, let me respond quickly to that point about the Hapas. I, I brought it up because we, we brought this up on the show many times. I think the whole Crazy Rich Asians, Henry Golden casting was the first, you know, instance where this became a topic amongst Asian Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not just on this pod, but like, is, does it just fall down to whether or not they're Asian passing? Like, does it, you know, does it matter? Because if people... It will... seems like it, but then even that is debatable because like, to me, Harry Golding, like, he looks full Asian to me. Yeah, Henry Golding is very Asian looking. So um, then, what's, I, okay, then, then what's wrong with pa- like then uh, you know 
casting a a full Asian person in to all the boys, right? Uh, in place of a happy character, because happy characters, also, as I we said see, here, can I look also Asian. Have no problem with that either. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, at what point do we get to a level of consistency here, and, and does this debate come up again in the case of Warrior? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, my issue with with all the boys is less about the, the casting, just more about the whole narrative framework of the having this story. Yeah. of having a family without sure. any actual Asian parents being portrayed as an all um, all Asian American story. That's the problem I had with it. I really don't care that much about whether an, a full Asian is cast as a hapa or vice versa. Um, you know, so long as it's consistent. Um, yeah, but also but I think but it's more, not, I think what we're learning here is it's not consistent, right? So we should just get over the fact that it's not consistent and you know m- move on. And maybe it matters more. Like the the thing that maybe matters more is if if the person is Asian passing or white passing. Well, yeah, I think that's that's really what it comes down to in terms and, of you know casting real, realism, etc. Yeah, and, and the issue of that is all that's like a, a judgment call, right? But yeah, um, yep. I guess but I, I, think, I guess there's one it, other issue that gets a little, gets to be a little you know like interesting or de- or like you know it gets to be like fodder for debate, which is uh, so like Assam. So a big part of Assam's character is the fact that he's a quarter uh, white, right? It's what gives him mm-hmm. the ability to speak English and kind of communicate and open doors, so to speak. And mm-hmm. maybe it's it makes sense. It's also your first clue that it's Bruce. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's your first clue that it's Bruce Lee, right? Because Bruce Lee himself was a quarter, uh, like, I think British, I don't remember. Uh, but he was a quarter white, basically, right? And so I think it's one of those things where, yeah, like, this might be, you know, this might come from the fact from, you know, basing it, raising the character on Bruce Lee himself. Or is it one of those things where it's very hard to tell a story of a, uh, you know, like a full Asian person in the West without giving them some kind of like blood, blood ties to blood ties to the West as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that is definitely an issue. One thing that Warrior does have going for it is that it's a TV series, not a movie. So you get a lot of Asian characters. So it, it like, even if the main character or, or the two main characters are Hapa, there's so many Asians that it, it's kind of like with crazy rich Asians. Like even if you had an issue with Henry Golding, casting there were enough asian male characters that you probably yeah, were like matter. okay yeah, yeah it didn't matter too much at the end um so yeah i, I think that's why with warrior I, I had the least issue with it uh, out of all these works that do follow i think uh, a trend that should be noted mm-hmm. um okay so we are deep into this uh, any any points that we've missed that you you want to bring up i, I mean as oh, far yeah. as like asian american media i think that this is one of the best i've seen and like it's it's very dismissed because it's like Cinemax, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's not a and, prestige channel. And Liza, but, we, we you were probably the harshest critic on Asian American work, so for you to say that is pretty high praise. <laughs> Liza, what do, you, what do you think of the uh, the martial arts and choreography in in the show? I was really really surprised at how good it was because I'm so like I I'm so happy to see like a martial arts film where it's not all stylized and they're not in like in on wires and there's not like all this like CGI all over the place. I mean I know that they're using some CGI, but it's it's very it reminds me of 70s martial arts choreography, which is oh, yeah. my favorite, and that's what this looks like. No, it really does. I mean, I watched uh, Enter the Dragon a few days ago, uh, just kind of as, an, as like, a, kind of just to give some context for Warrior. And yeah, it was, uh, you know, there were definitely parallels with it. Like I think Assam, like uh, Andrew Gautry definitely uh, studied Bruce Lee's style over there and it looked uh, pretty cool. Uh, just a couple of things. Uh, so actually I had a question for you guys. What are your guys' favorite martial arts movies uh, or like shows outside, <laughs> outside of Warrior? You guys answer first as I, as I think. <laughs> 
I, I mean, that's I, like a whole episode for me. Yeah, we should definitely have a separate episode to talk about that. But I, I recently rewatched uh, Rumble in the Bronx with uh, Jackie Chan on his birthday a couple of days ago. Uh, and that was definitely a childhood favorite and still a favorite today, I think. Seeing that in theaters, because I think that might be one of the first martial arts movies that I saw yeah. in theaters, like in middle school. Like that was such an experience. I just remember mm-hmm. people were like in the aisles, people were standing up and clapping. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I recently I watched Itman again a few months ago and really, really loved it again, like for uh, like for the history part of it. Uh, but the other one I really enjoyed because my parents wanted to watch it the other day uh, was, uh, and even though it's not, it's kind of like a Wuxia one, not a full-on martial arts one, was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, they had some great fight scenes in that. Also just like great story. I th- Itman for like, Itman is one of those movies yeah. that I recommend to everybody because that is like, if, we're, if we want to talk about like, revisionist history the itman oh, yeah, series we should, yeah we should do a... it and oh, like yeah. i like that it doesn't get more pro-china than those itman <laughs> movies oh yeah you know and the fight scenes are so good it's itman mm-hmm. one through four just, just do all of them yeah, yeah. i mean our, the original plan was to try to incorporate itman into this episode but you know we could barely fit warrior in so we should do oh, a yeah. whole episode on itman if, but if we had to pick if we had to pick like my my favorite martial arts movies i gotta say um i gotta go with uh shogun's ninja um mm-hmm. and I, I i enter the dragon or uh fist of fury fist of, and fury fist of legend yeah I, I can't name any it's i guess um as i said i I'm, i wasn't never the biggest martial arts fan i mean this is, you're gonna crucify me i for feel this. like Probably. i feel like by the end of or like by doing this podcast chris like my goal is to make you a hardcore <laughs> martial arts movie yeah, but fan I, I really like Cobra Kai. Um, I oh like, my god! I love Warrior. Um, <laughs> really, I hated you're being a really, you're being really basic right now, man. Are we yeah. really talking about these as martial arts movies, or like is is Karate Kid? Karate Kid is Rocky for kids. It's yeah. like you know, it's like Mighty Ducks. It's yeah. not like. <laughs> I was, was going to say you're going to crucify show, me though. for this, but the th- first thing that comes to my mind when you say my favorite martial arts movie is probably Rush Hour. That's the only thing that comes to me. So, so please, well, at least it's Jackie. It's a great movie. Yeah, like the whole body cop dynamic is still one of my favorites in that yeah a point i wanted to make i think this is important uh, before we close it is the whole uh historical revisionism aspect of this and in the vox uh piece written by karen turner which i thought was a really good piece and i was surprised because you know vox usually is crap with their cultural takes but this was really good because she actually makes an explicit comparison to bridgerton which is also historical revisionism but the Mm -hmm. reason why but not the good kind Right, right. But no. the good there's a good kind of historical revisionism and, and bad. And the good kind of historical revisionism is a what-if situation that is actually makes logical sense in the context of history. Because mm. Warrior is, as I said, fantasy that Bruce Lee and a bunch of other Bruce Lees did not live in Chinatown <laughs> to kill all the, the racists. But it makes sense in, in the social and political context that if there were, they would have done that. The problem with the Bridgerton is not that there is a black aristocracy in Regency England, which is actually fascinating if you did like a what if scenario, but it's that they don't, it doesn't follow the rules that, and the social logic that would have happened at that period, which is in a world where slavery is still rife, how would a, a black aristocracy in a European imperial nation act they wouldn't act just like dark-skinned white people which is how they act in bridgerton (laughs) it'd be like the equivalent if warrior were like bridgerton there would be no racial conflict in fact the story would probably uh, center on asam and penny's relationship and his uh dilemma about being asian but being in love with a white woman that's probably what it would uh be all about this total ignoring of 
the the real racial tensions and violence at the time. In fact, it would just be kind of like a modern day uh, rom com or something set in New York City <laughs> or modern day San Francisco. So also that's there would be the uh, there would be fewer song suits and more like you know more of those annoying like dandy ass outfits that uh, I think Chow wears a few of them over here, but. Uh, yeah, I really can't see Assam wearing like some dandy outfit and a top hat and <laughs> you know, like drinking whiskey with like Blake, uh, Mayor Blake and all of them. It just it just would not hit right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, to sum it all up, I I really love this show. And even, as I said, I'm not a martial arts fan. I wasn't really expecting to like. I was kind of. You don't have I, to keep pointing that out, though. But I want <laughs> I want to get people who don't who who are scared off by the martial arts aspect to who watch it. Who listens to this show and is not a martial arts fan? I true. Know. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Like, so like going to cancel you if you're data. not a martial arts fan. <laughs> I mean, I'll cancel you as well, man. Come on, martial arts movies are fun. <laughs> yeah, but this was yeah, just like um loved it and I no, can't There's I nowhere really... else where you will get you will get more Asian pride than a martial arts movie. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that's that's probably one of the dirty secrets that maybe some Asian Americans didn't really like it. They, it was it was just like too aggro sense of uh, Asian American pride that that made made us uncomfortable until maybe recently maybe that's like the turning point maybe we're gonna dig more of this stuff now but I think at least well, like 10 20 want, years we ago we don't want the blue check crowd touching martial arts <laughs> we don't <laughs> um, <laughs> oh god no <laughs> alright uh, a- any other closing thoughts uh, watch the oh, show it's good yeah the, yeah, the show is really great you should watch it uh, yeah oh another fun really one just funny aside uh, so like the subreddit Asian masculinity has like this trying to fundraise like for an ad at the Super Bowl, not at the Super Bowl, for an ad at the Oscars. So like oh. <laughs> to like push uh, HBO to have a season three of it. So uh, yeah, it, there's definitely people who like it out there. Hey, that that's positive. Uh, at least that's, you know at what? least that's it's productive. That's actually something I agree with. That's- yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's on brand for them. Yeah, and it's and it's actual like it's direct action. So there you go. Yeah, it's, it's like only only something positive can the come Oscars out of it. The Oscars are in like two weeks and no one's talking oh, shit. about it. This is yeah. like a oh, dream really? true for me. Only movie people <laughs> are talking about it. Um, I don't mean to extend discussion, but did you see that Bill Maher clip where he was whining about how the all the Oscar movies are too depressing and he wants like happy movies? <laughs> Again, I, I thought it was wow. a weird thing to suddenly go off on. No, but let him because that's funny. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was, I was no. wondering what kind of movies would he would want to see. Maybe like Cinderella Man. You know those like feel good Ron Howard type of movies. Is that what he's asking for? Well, I mean, that's what Oscar too. Bait, right? I like, like those too. Yeah, yeah. I love Beautiful Mind. Great movie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Apollo Thirteen. Great movie. That was um, fun. Okay, so anyway, uh, listeners, if you haven't seen Warrior and but you've listened to this whole episode, go watch it. What the hell are you waiting for? It's on, it's HBO, on HBO Go. Max. Yeah, uh, I I keep calling it HBO Go. Yeah, yeah, but it's called HBO Max. Um, it's there. Um, you'll you'll enjoy yourself, and it's really different from a lot of Asian American stuff you'll see. And if you subscribe today, you can watch uh, the new Mortal Kombat movie on the 16th of April. So there you go. Oh, yeah. That's... More <gasps> impetus. I'm excited for that one. <laughs> yeah. If you yeah. liked yeah. Joe Taslim as Lee Yong here, he plays Sub-Zero in that movie. Oh, and... shit. Oh, fuck yeah. Wait, and you didn't know that? I did not know that till now. Oh, I oh, thought that's shit. why you were bringing it up. <laughs> no, that was not why, because I like I love Mortal Kombat. That's why. <laughs> no. Well, that's I'm dope. I'm excited, cool. too. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, likewise. And Liza, Hiroyuki Sanada plays uh, Scorpion. I know. Oh, yeah. Of course you would know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. So thanks for joining us, for signing off. And Arnav, thank you so much for coming on. We'll have you back uh, for sure. I mean, we want to do an episode on the White Tiger, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I I still have to read that book and I'm on the wait list at the library. So we'll eventually get to that and other. We got to do more. Uh, Indian cinema as well. So yeah, no, I was. I think I think when you were talking about the White Tiger earlier, uh, 
I was, I think I was telling you, but you guys need to uh, basically watch something that contra- like an Indian made movie that contrasts with it. Like uh, Gangs of Wasipur is kind of the best contrast. Yes, yes. And uh, have to you, watch you should just watch that in general. It's like probably one of the greatest movies ever made, period. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I definitely have to watch that. Yeah. Uh, Set aside right. weekend. It's yeah, hours. no, it's like a nine-hour movie. <laughs> yeah, it's I like, think it's about like six hours. Six hours? Okay. It's yeah, it's like two parts. It's not like, yeah, it's it's like one long six-hour movie. Yeah. It's a two-parter. And it's just, yeah. it's just got, you know, all the sex, drugs, violence that you would like. So, yeah, it's great. Excellent. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So, until next week, Unverified Account signing off. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. All right. See ya. See ya.